Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of the Bible and Life podcast. Man, in the midst of all the craziness that uh, the coronavirus has brought up on this world, I pray that wherever you are at and wherever you are listening, that God is with you and you are doing well in spite of the chaos and in spite of the restrictions and the difficulties. I know currently where I live in Boise, Idaho, we're not on complete lockdown yet here in our state, although some states in the United States are, and uh, we, however, are, the restrictions are mounting. We, you know, dine in at restaurants is gone, parks are closed, so many people are being laid off work, and man, just all sorts of difficulty and hardship and disruption and change in the midst of all of this, and uh, I know in some places it's far worse than it is here. So wherever you are listening at, uh, blessings to you. May the peace and the goodness of God be with you and encourage you and strengthen you in the midst of all this chaos. May uh, his goodness bring you joy, even in the midst of uncertainty and disruption and difficulty. And if you have any specific prayer request, needs in the midst of this situation, then shoot me an email. Let me know how I could be praying for you and for your family in the midst of all of this. So, all right, let's uh, turn our attention to the topic for today. We have been just really interacting with questions from uh, various uh, friends and listeners that commented on a social media post I did a couple weeks ago just about the Bible and some of the difficulties in the Bible and some of our frustrations even with the Bible. One of those that got mentioned a couple of times was just generally the Old Testament law, particularly all the rituals, weird rules, weird laws, clean and unclean, and and some of that that we experience when just reading through the Old Testament law, particularly the book of Leviticus. And so in this episode of the podcast, I want to just take some time to look at Leviticus and look at the law, and particularly look at the clean and unclean laws and what was the purpose of that. And how could that help us even understand maybe some of the other unusual or weird or just kind of different laws that just seem so unfamiliar to us? One commenter on that uh, social media post, um, when I asked, you know, what is what are some of your difficulties and frustrations reading the Bible? And this one gal, her comment was, I'm reading through Leviticus. Enough said. And I suspect a lot of us feel that way. In fact, uh, if, man, you're having a hard time sleeping, you know, I used to recommend just open up to the book of Leviticus and start reading. It should put you right to sleep, right? Like, sometimes we feel that way. Like, the book of Leviticus is just odd. And it's just pretty much all law. It's not a story. It's just all rules, all regulations, all laws, and all of that. Very little even narrative story type uh, text within Leviticus. Pretty much the whole thing is law. And that's just hard to read. And it's kind of boring, isn't it? So let me offer just kind of some thoughts by way of general framework sort of like a map to making sense of Leviticus. And then let's dive in specifically to the clean and unclean laws and some of the other kind of just unusual, even weird laws in the book of Leviticus and elsewhere in the law. All right, that's sort of how I want to organize things. So let's start with sort of a big picture framework or a map to understanding the law, particularly Leviticus. 
And the first thing that needs to be said about Leviticus is, as I noted, it's like ritual after ritual, rule after rule, regulation after regulation. In fact, a lot of Leviticus, um, one way to describe it is a lot of Leviticus is like a policy and procedures manual for the Old Testament priests. If you've ever had to read, you know, for your job, your company, your business, or whatever it is, you've ever had to sit down and read like the employee handbook or the policy and procedures manual for, and it was really detailed. Well, there a whole bunch of Leviticus is largely like that. Just not real exciting reading, is it? But that's sort of the way it functions. And so having that picture in mind, I think, helps us. Like, all right, God has called his people, Israel, to himself. They're going to have a whole system of worship. God has deemed the Levites uh, as priests, and specifically the family of Aaron as high priests. And so how do they do their job? What are, they, what are their roles supposed to be? How do they carry out specific sorts of sacrifices? What about certain festival holidays? How do they carry those out? What are the details for that? They don't know how to do that. This is all brand new. And so here we have it, a policy and procedures manual for the Old Testament priests. And so keep that in mind as you read through Leviticus. That's sort of what it is doing in a lot of ways. And even, even the, the huge chunks of it that are more directed to the ordinary person are directed towards the ordinary person in some regards uh, for the benefit of the priest so the priest can make sure the ordinary person is carrying out the God's expectations in, in a good and right and appropriate sort of way. So, policy and procedures manual. Think of it that way. That kind of helps. Second part of the framework as we think about Leviticus is that we have to remember where it fits into the whole story. It's part of the covenant that God made with Israel. It, it's their covenant, not our covenant. Right? Like Jesus inaugurated a new covenant. And, and uh, that was even anticipated in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. So Leviticus is part of God's covenant with Israel, not God's covenant through Jesus to us. So it's their covenant, not our covenant. we got to keep that in mind as we read it so that we understand what's going on. One scholar described it as God's ways in Moses' days. Did you catch that? It's God's ways in Moses' days for them in their time, in their place, their culture, dealing with their issues at that, at that time and place in history. And as I noted, even and even the Old Testament anticipated a new covenant. Jeremiah 31 says, In those days, says the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. And it will not be like the old covenant. And so there's going to be a new covenant that's going to be different from the old covenant. We're in Jesus. We're living under the days of that new covenant. But the Old Testament anticipated that, looked forward to that. In fact, even Deuteronomy. Part of the Old Testament law pointed forward towards that. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 4 through 6, you should read it, but it talks about God knows what's going to happen. He knows Israel is going to be unfaithful to the covenant. They're going to experience the ultimate curse of violating that covenant. That ultimate curse is going into exile. And so he says, at some point, I'm going to bring you back from exile. And when I do, I'm going to circumcise your hearts and I'm going to make you new so that you'll actually keep my covenant again. And that that is 
that language is picked up in the prophets and in Jeremiah in particular as part of this new covenant. And so the law itself and the prophets looked forward to the days of a new covenant. And so the, the law and Leviticus in particular is part of God's covenant with Israel. And that covenant is part of a larger story, obviously part of the whole story of the Bible, which is the story of redemption, how God's going to reverse the curse and bring his blessing to all the nations as he promised Abraham. So you have that big story, but zoom in a little bit just on Israel, and Leviticus is part of the story of God's redemption of Israel. And oftentimes as Christians, we kind of demean God's law and turn it into all these rules and rituals that you had to keep in order to earn God's favor. That's just a complete misreading of the law and a complete misreading of the story of Israel. The way the law worked is it was given after God redeemed Israel and it's tied to God's redemption. In other words, I have chosen you. I have redeemed you by my outstretched arm, God says. Now you are my people, and now as my people, here's how I want you to live. In other words, grace preceded the law. Redemption preceded the covenant. And so God called them out as his people and redeemed them and led them out of Egypt, right? And then they arrived at Mount Sinai, and now God is giving them his law at Mount Sinai as a way to shape and form them as his people. And a huge part of that is the fact that now God is going to come and dwell among them. What God did with uh, Adam and Eve in the garden and was lost by virtue of mankind's rebellion, God is going to try to recapture for the time being among Israel, and he's going to dwell among them. Well, that raises a real important question. How does a, a holy God live among an unholy people? And how do unholy people relate to a holy God who's come to live among them? Well, that has to be answered. And so Leviticus intends to really answer that question. And so the end of Exodus tells the story of all the details for how to make the tabernacle, which is going to be how and where God is going to live among his people, the, the kind of the visible symbolic representation of God's dwelling place among Israel. Well, how now do, does Israel how do they live with a perfectly holy God in their midst? And Leviticus answers that question. And so we have to keep that big story in mind as we read through it, or else we really don't appreciate what's going on. For them, Leviticus was a massive gift. Like, it's a massive gift because it tells very clearly what God expected of them and how he wanted them to live as his people now that he has formed them and called them to himself. So that's the framework that helps us read Leviticus well. Now let's zoom in on the specifics of the clean and unclean laws particularly, and even some of how that can help us understand some of the other kind of just odd or unusual laws. All right, So let's talk clean and unclean, particularly clean and unclean animals. And what we need to understand right up front is of most importance these laws are symbolic they they aren't like absolute binding unchanging eternal moral laws they are symbolic what are they symbolic of well let me read this to you god makes it very clear in Levit leviticus what they're symbolic of he says this in leviticus 20:24 20, through 26 I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. 
you must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals, between clean and unclean birds. Do not defile yourself by an animal or bird or anything that moves along the ground. Those that I've set apart as unclean for you. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Do you hear the repeated idea in this? That God says, I have set you apart. I've set you apart from the nations. That's the rationale for these food laws, these clean and unclean laws, is that God has set Israel apart from the nations. Notice verse 25. He says, you therefore must make a distinction. So the logical connection is, I have set you apart from the nations, therefore we're going to have clean and unclean laws about animals and birds and all of that. And so the rationale for the clean and unclean laws is that God has set them apart from the nations. Um, so these laws are symbolic of their distinction from the nations. These laws are a picture of how Israel is separate or set apart or distinct from all the other nations around them. And that's the basic meaning of the word holy. So notice verse 26 says, You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. The basic meaning of the word holy is set apart or distinct. It doesn't necessarily mean like morally perfect can have that meaning. And sometimes, obviously, in regard to God, it does. But its basic meaning is set apart. And so we're not talking like the clean animals. Oh, those are the good, pure, holy, perfect animals. And the unclean animals. Oh, those are the bad, rotten, evil animals. No. Why? Because God has declared his whole creation good. Everything in it is good. God declared the whole thing good way back at the beginning when he first made the world. And you see that in Genesis 1 and 2. So the whole creation is good. Every animal is good in, in that ultimate sense. But in this specific sense, with regard to Israel, God is making a distinction. He is arbitrary in some ways. Who knows? Like God's choice of Israel, somewhat arbitrary. God had his reasons. The point is, is that God is making a, a distinction between certain kinds of animals that he wants to be sort of like a, a giant uh, um, picture object lesson for Israel. So clean simply marks it off as distinct. And in the same way, Israel is to be distinct from the nations. And so even in what they eat, uh, it's to remind the Israelites that they are set apart as God's distinct people, marked out to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in the language of Exodus. And so the food laws and probably most of the other laws that separate things and make distinctions between things were like a giant object lesson that Israel was set apart specifically set apart from the nations around them. And thus, it shouldn't be surprising that once Jesus came, these food laws were set aside. Why? Well, because the national distinction for the, the nation of Israel no longer remains. In Jesus, Paul writes, Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek, Jew nor Gentile. Like, that distinction no longer remains. And that's why when God needed to teach the early Jewish church uh, in the book of Acts this lesson. 
What did he do it through? He did it through the clean and unclean food laws, right? The story is recorded in Acts chapter 10. Peter is praying up on the roof of a house while he's waiting for lunch to be made. God shows him a vision of a great white sheet that comes down from heaven. And on it are all sorts of unclean animals. The kind of animals that Leviticus says, don't eat those, right? And God, in this vision, says to Peter, arise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter protests, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. No, I can't do that. Three times this happens where God has to keep pointing out to Peter, no, Peter, arise, kill and eat. And then Peter uh, comes to from this vision and all of a sudden realizes at that very moment there's a Gentile knocking on the door downstairs. Peter goes down and Peter has this whole vision in mind and all of a sudden he realizes that God is telling him, oh, there's not a distinction anymore between Israel and the nations, um, just like there's no longer a distinction anymore between clean and unclean foods. Oh, I get it. God used the very point and purpose of the clean and unclean food laws to teach Peter that the distinction between Jews and Gentiles is now removed. And so it makes perfect sense since those laws were a daily tangible reminder that they were set apart from the nations. It makes perfect sense that God would use it as a picture uh, about how now the Gentiles are welcomed in. What's more is it's also important to note that since these food laws, these clean and unclean laws, were symbols of Israel being set apart for God, those laws also called them to live out uh, the other laws about moral integrity and social justice and covenant loyalty. And that's why when you see the prophets chastising Israel or even warning them of judgment to come, um, for keeping the rituals, but neglecting the social justice and the covenant loyalty that is embodied in those ritual laws. For example, uh, Amos chapter 5. Amos uh, really warns Israel of uh, certain punishment because they're, they're being unjust to their neighbors. They're not practicing the social justice that the law itself called them to. And they're being unfaithful to God by worshiping other gods. And so Amos chapter 5 verse 21 says this, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. This is God speaking through the prophet. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I'm not going to listen to the music of your harps. Instead, let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Do you hear what Amos is saying? That God has said, look, fine, you're, you're worshiping me. You're going through the rituals of, of temple worship and you're singing your songs and you're offering your sacrifices and you're keeping the, the kind of the ritual laws, including some of those food laws, but then you're you're not practicing social justice and, and you're treating your neighbor badly. And God's like, I don't want the rituals without that. Why? Because this was a symbol of Israel being set apart for God. And as such, it called them to live out the other laws, the more really central laws about moral integrity and social justice and covenant loyalty. In this regard, the laws of Leviticus and the whole Old Testament 
they're just incredibly comprehensive and they cover so much stuff involving religious worship and then just very down-to-earth things about your relationships with your neighbors and your animals and even how you build a small wall around the roof of your house so someone's not going to fall off. I mean, like they're very comprehensive. Family life, social life, economic life, all of that is really dealt with in the Old Testament law. And there's an Old Testament scholar by the name of uh, Christopher J.H. Wright. Uh, he actually is one of these guys that first got me thinking about a lot of this. He wrote an article a number of years ago entitled, Learning to Love Leviticus. Look, most of us don't love Leviticus. I, I'm not nearly apparently as good at Leviticus as Chris Wright because I still struggle with Leviticus. But he's the one that kind of tipped me off on a lot of this stuff and got me thinking in this regard. I really like his work with regard to the Old Testament. He has a very thoroughgoing book on the Old Testament were entitled Old Testament Ethics for the People of God. And in that book, this is what he writes about the comprehensiveness of the Old Testament law. He says this, since it's calling God's people to be holy. In fact, you can't read Leviticus without noticing uh, the re refrain on holiness, holiness, holiness. Particularly the last half of the book is all about how God's people need to be holy. And that idea means set apart, distinct from the nations, right? So uh, Christopher J.H. Wright in this book writes this. He says, holiness is rather a way of being, a way of being with God in covenant relationship, a way of being like God in clean and wholesome living, a way of being God's people in the midst of an unholy and unclean world. And that's why it's so comprehensive. That's why even the ritual laws, like the food laws, point towards and call Israel to live with moral integrity, to live in a way that practices social justice in regards to the needy and the poor and the orphan and the widow, that calls them to live in covenant loyalty with God, being faithful to him and him alone, not worshiping other gods, the gods of the nations around them, because holiness is a comprehensive way of being where our life is lived before God and with God for his purposes in this world. And so even Jesus, when he declares all foods clean, doesn't eliminate the symbolic purpose of those laws. Jesus' people, us who follow Jesus, we are still to be set apart distinct from the world around us in the way we carry out our life, in our way of being before God and with God. And so when Jesus declares all foods clean, he still calls us to be distinct. Listen, this is from uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, beginning the end of verse 18. Uh, it says this, Jesus speaking, Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? Uh, for it doesn't go into their heart, but into the stomach, and then it's eliminated. And in saying this, Mark editorizes, Jesus declared all foods clean. And Jesus went on and said, it's what comes out of a person. That's what defiles them, for from within, out of a person's heart, um, that uh, evil thoughts arise, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evil come from within, and they are what defile a person. And so Jesus 
Um, even in saying, look, we're coming to a point in God's relationship with the world where that distinction between Jew and Gentile, between Jew and the nations, no longer applies. And thus, the food laws no longer pertain. The unclean and unclean symbolic point of them no longer pertains in the same way. But the symbolic purpose of them does. You still have to be distinct from the world around you. You still have to have a pure and clean heart that lives with God in a holy sort of way. And so now, um, now the thing that Jesus says we need to pay attention to that ought to distinguish us and set us apart as God's people are what comes out of our heart. And he lists off just a random sampling of the kinds of things that can come out of a person's heart. That That's just the way of the world, but it's not the way of God's people. And so now in Christ, our distinction comes from being sexually pure, from being generous rather than uh, thieves, from um, not being full of anger and murder, but being full of generosity, grace, and forgiveness, right? We're not greedy, um, but we're um, self-giving. We don't have malice and evil in our heart. We're not deceitful, but we're kind-hearted and loving, right? Those things are what set us apart. And so now, clean and unclean are redefined by Jesus as um, here's what sets a person apart as being the people of God. And so Leviticus, Leviticus, it's part of God's covenant with Israel. And it's odd, somewhat unusual, maybe even seemingly weird laws are primarily symbolic that Israel as a nation is set apart from the other nations around it. Um, they taught Israel to be holy, and though the details look different for us, uh, they can call us to be holy as too, to be set apart from the world around us as God's people today. Hey, I hope that's helpful to you as you just really wrestle with the Old Testament. Man, there's going to be laws in Leviticus and elsewhere in the Old Testament where we just scratch our head and we're like, man, I don't fully get that. Some of that is because we just don't get the Old uh, the original context of Moses's day, and we don't fully maybe understand, okay, what were the nations doing, and how does this distinguish them from the nations? We're just not as familiar with some of the details of the world around them. I'm sure to Israel it made perfect sense, and in fact, in maybe traditional cultures more like ancient Israelite culture, they understand some of those things more than we do. In fact, uh, I have a former student who's living and working among a tribal people in Uganda who says ever since moving there, she understands the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, some of the Old Testament laws far better than she did before because they still will practice sacrifices. They still live in fear and darkness and all of that. And now she understands a little bit more of what God is doing in the Old Testament than she did before. And so we're going to still struggle with it just because it's so different than our worldview, so different than our culture. But hopefully what we covered today gives a framework and a some guidance to how to read it well and to what their whole purpose was. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Bible and Life podcast. I'm so glad that we could spend this time together. Again, stay safe in the midst of this coronavirus epidemic and May God be with you and bless you as you seek and serve Him. May you live a holy life distinct from the world around you for the honor and the glory of God because of Jesus. Take care. Let's talk again soon.